Bombs Politicast. Um, I'll be host today. Uh, a lot of a lot of stuff going on this morning. I hope that everyone's having a really great day and a great week. It was the week of St. Patrick's Day, which is interesting. It's always an interesting holiday. I never really get into it too much, but there's a lot of people who really get into St. Patrick's Day and of course, maybe if I was more of a drinker and stuff like that, maybe it'd be really great to go to the Irish pub and all that kind of stuff, but I'm not really, so it's just kind of another day. I mean, what is interesting, though, uh, this is just off topic, but it's just it just occurred to me that it is interesting how there's all this talk about cultural appropriation, but that doesn't seem to apply to the Irish. Like, everybody celebrate St. Patrick's Day, whether or not they're Irish. It's, uh, I mean, it's not a national holiday, but nationally, all over the country, people celebrate it, regardless of their uh, ethnicity or background or religion or race or anything. Well, maybe not religion, but um, I don't know, but just nobody says a peep about that, you know, but... uh it's always a big deal, you know, if you culturally appropriate other um, uh, cultures and things. Um, okay. One thing that I, you know, we want to, I want to let you know about is that uh, the IRS has um, extended the deadline for your taxes from April 15th until May 17th. Um, they are doing this for a number of reasons, but most mostly because it was such a chaotic year. They want to give people more time. Uh, so anyway, it gives you a little extra time if you're working on your taxes, you know, to get everything together. So that's uh, good news. Um, according to The Hill, the weekly jobless claims... Uh, rose slightly to 770,000 as the U.S. marks one year of recession. Now, there's not a whole lot to talk about on that story. I mean, it's pretty self-explanatory. 770,000 jobless claims. Now, of course, with the jobless claims, you have to remember, these are people who are first-time um, uh, claiming, you know, for the first time that they're jobless. This doesn't include people who have given up looking for work. So the number of unemployed is actually much higher. In fact, um, I just saw a statistic this morning which said that our jobless rate is higher than it was at the peak of the Great Depression. So, but that th the depression is actually what I wanted to remark on here. We have one year of a recession what they aren't putting here, I mean, that sounds uh, dramatic enough, but um, what what they are neglecting to say is that we are officially entering a depression. Because if you have four consecutive quarters of a recession, that counts as a depression. Four quarters make up a year. So if we have one year of a recession, then we've officially entered a depression in this country. And, but I know that they don't want to say that publicly. So 
um, you know, I'm sure they don't want to alarm people, but, but the truth is, guys, we've entered a depression. Hopefully it won't stay a depression that long, but we have officially entered a depression after four quarters of consecutive recession. Uh, let's see. A story that I want to talk about is in the Federalist, actually, a pretty, pretty good uh, newspaper or magazine, I guess, or whatever you call it. Um, and it says Michigan's Democratic Attorney General employs blatant double standard to refuse investigation into Whitmer. Um, it's written by a man named Tristan Justice, who um, I don't know him personally, but I know of him for a long time. Uh, we are mutuals on Twitter. Of course, this is, the Federalist is more of a libertarian leaning. Uh, I mean, it's conservative, but a little more libertarian leaning, but still. So I know I've criticized articles in the past for being too biased. And so I have to, I have to admit this article is biased. I mean, it's not, um, this isn't uh, just, I'm going to give you the information and let you decide. But so anyway, the article reads, Michigan Democratic Attorney General Dane Nessel refused requests from Republican state lawmakers to launch an investigation into Democratic Governor Gretchen Whitmer. In February, State Senator Jim Runstad spearheaded a letter signed by seven others calling on Nestle to launch a probe into Whitmer's April 15th executive order mandating long-term care facilities admit COVID-infected patients. In a similar directive to that handed down by New York Governor Andrew Cuomo, Whitmer's order was renewed throughout the summer until it was finally rescinded in September. Attorney General Nessel knows the right thing to do, and that is to get answers for every family who lost a loved one to COVID-19 in a nursing home, Runestead said in a statement, as the true toll of Whitmer's order remains unknown. The Governor's Department of Health and Human Services is under undergoing active litigation to keep data private that could reveal the true effects of Whitmer's order on nursing homes. Hours after Runestead's statement, Nestle sent a letter to the state senator denying Republicans' request for what she decried as a political investigation. Though I will not hesitate to act when justified, I also will not abuse the investig investigatory powers of this department to launch a political attack, Nestle wrote. No investigation is warranted at this time. Nestle argued no investigation was needed despite the governor's office withholding data that could reveal the severity of her own orders, in part based upon a report from the University of Michigan that concluded the state's strategy to protect nursing homes performed well. The report conducted by the University of Michigan Center for Health and Research Transformation, however, according to Detroit News reporter Craig Mauger, was funded by the Health Endowment Fund, which has a board appointed uh, by the governor. Oh, that's just... I'll, I'll withhold my comments. While Nestle refuses an investigation into a governor of her own party because it would be political, the Democrat Attorney General appointed prosecutors to go after the state's former Republican governor, Rick Snyder, whom she described as a soulless monster on numerous occasions. 
In defending her decision to deny a probe into Whitmer, Nessel wrote, law enforcement officials have an ethical duty to limit the political impact of an investigation without regard to the official's personal political beliefs or affiliations. Nessel also wrote, in any event, bad policy alone would not be grounds for an investigation by my office. So, um, uh, while ordering the prosecution of a governor already out of office, she declared a soulless monster, Nessel won't investigate the state's current governor over a nursing home policy for which the administration has refused transparency. Um, yeah, this is, uh, if, if I was the governor, as I've said many times, um, uh, there are a lot of things I would do, including resign. But, um, but if I was Whitmer, or if I was, uh, if I was uh, giving her advice, I would tell her, get all this stuff out now, because the longer she delays this, this will come out. And if she delays it, continues to delay it, it's going to end up coming out in the middle of her re-election campaign. If she releases it now, there will be a, a there will be a, a storm, firestorm, certainly. People will be angry. There'll be calls for resignation and, and impeachment and these kind of things. But it'll boil over by, you know, I, I mean, I think it'll boil over in just a matter of months, but certainly by summer and fall, the people of Michigan will have moved on to other issues. They're not going to still uh, be thinking about this. And by next year, it'll be a forgotten memory. It'll be just something that... Um, you know, is, is talked about in passing and just kind of maybe in a political ad or something. But but the uh, the immediacy is going to be over. The, the immediate visceral reaction that people will have, it'll just become something they bake in that, yeah, she made a mistake with the nursing homes. But so I would advise her to get the stuff out now because this is the same problem that um, – Hillary Clinton experienced when she ran for president in May of 2019, or I mean, uh, 2015, the, uh, the email issue arose. Well, I, I, I think it actually arose somewhat earlier than that, but come to think of it. But the point is, it was early 2015. The exact dates don't matter. But it was in early 2015 then it came out, but she refused, you know, she covered it up. She lied about it. She tried to hide it. She refused to talk about it, hoped it would go away. And it ended up blowing up in her face in the middle of the general election campaign. As WikiLeaks started releasing things, we started finding out more information about it. They started an investigation. The FBI started an investigation into it. If, if in early 2015, before the primaries had even started, the primary campaign, had she been transparent, released everything, you know, then if there was anything to be upset about, people would have been over it. But she delayed it and delayed it and delayed it, and it was just a ticking time bomb that went off when she was running for president. And she couldn't escape it at that point. It started to overtake her entire campaign and overshadow everything. And that's what I'm saying here, that by delaying this, it's just she's just delaying the inevitable. This will come out. 
But if she delays it too long, it's going to come out in the middle of her governor's race. Now, I know I say if I was advising her, that's what I would tell her. I know I, I, I can just hear right now many of you Republicans who listen to my to our show are saying, hey, that's great. Keep covering it up. That'll be wonderful because it'll all blow up right in her face, right in the middle of the election. Um, and, and, you know, uh, so I, I'm just saying if, if I was a political figure and I had, uh, a scandal that might break, I would take the heat immediately. It'll be rough. It's not any fun to go through, you know, but you know, you'll, it'll pass. If you delay and delay and delay, then it's going to be a bomb that's going to go off at the worst time. And then you're going to have no choice but to address it. And at that time, it might, it might give you the uh, – it potentially could derail everything and destroy um, your, your political career. You know, we saw that with Richard Nixon. We saw that with Bill Clinton. Um, to a certain degree, I guess you could say we saw that with Donald Trump. Um, you know, some of these issues with Trump and and um, and like I said, with Bill Clinton and with Richard Nixon, and uh, had they just been transparent, the whole thing would have been over. But you know, um, but you know, they continued, like in Trump's case. And I understand why he did it, but you know what? He continued to be like, that's fake news, that's fake news. And the media just kept going after it and just kept getting a bigger and bigger story, like the Ukraine phone call, um, you know, and things like that. You know, just release everything. Uh, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's ancient history. It's hard to remember. I'm trying to think back at, you know, there was just a couple of times during his presidency that I thought, just take the heat, admit admit what happened, and move on, and people will forget it. Um, so, anyway, back to Governor Whitmer. I just think this is a, a mistake. I think she should just be transparent, be honest. You know, if she made a mistake, I mean, I'm going to give her the benefit of the doubt and assume that she didn't intend to kill all these old people by putting them in that nursing home. Um I'm assuming that she was following the same advice that Governor Cuomo of New York was getting when he did the same thing. Just admit it was a mistake. Looking back now, I wouldn't have done it. Um, I realize now it was horrible what happened, but I was basing it on the best information I had at the time. You know, and uh, it won't bring any of those people back, but people are a lot more likely to forgive somebody who makes an honest mistake and admits it. Then someone who says, I didn't do anything wrong and don't question me about it and it's none of your business and I'm not I'm not going to admit anything. Uh, you know, uh, I just think I think she'd be much better advised to come clean, admit everything, and uh move on. But unfortunately it's not really her style. She she just digs her heels in the dirt and refuses to budge, and I just think it's I think it's unfortunate, and I don't think it does her any good. Okay, here we go 
to we're basically going back in time to the 1950s. Um, oh, I, let me explain what I mean by this. Uh, America, in its in its quest to be woke and to be uh, inclusive uh, to all inclusive isn't the right word, but when we start putting people's feelings and we want to, we want to make everyone feel good and feel loved and, and all this, what we've ended up doing is going back in time. And that's what I'm saying. You'll understand this when I read the article, you know, it's like we're living in the 1950s again in their effort to make everything, to make everyone feel good they're actually destroying everything, all the progress we've made in America on race relations and everything in the past hundred years. Columbia University in New York. This is an article on blacklistednews.com. Um, uh, there's a lot of really good information. It's not Republican or Democrat. It's actually, a lot of it is anti-government. <laughs> so whoever's in office, they give a lot of news that um, sometimes isn't, isn't well publicized. In this case, it's from uh, the sources Fox News, but lots of times they'll have articles about what's going on with the war that isn't being covered, or you know stuff like that. But anyway, Columbia University in New York is planning to hold six additional graduation ceremonies for students, according to their race and other aspects of how they they identify. The New York City Schools website details graduation ceremonies. They're going to have separate graduation ceremonies for Native Americans, a different one for Asians, another graduation for Latinos, and another one for black students taking place at Columbia College, Columbia Engineering, General Studies, and Bernard College at the end of April. Another graduation that they're planning is called, is being dubbed the FLI graduation, and that's for first-generation and or low-income communities. So for poor kids, we're going to have their own graduation ceremony. And lastly, they're going to host a lavender graduation for the LGBTIAQ plus community. These letters just keep getting more and more. I mean, I have I have no idea actually what that those all stand for, but due to the coronavirus restrictions, they will be taking place this online. Um, but uh, Columbia University did not respond to a request for comment. Um, but um, so you understand what I'm saying here, is that now they don't they want to segregate all of the um, graduate graduating class. I'm surprised they don't have one for women. So now they're having a ceremony for white kids, white rich kids. Then they'll have a separate ceremony for white poor kids. And they're gonna have another ceremony just for the black kids for their graduation and just for the Native Americans and just for the Asians and for the Latinos, and then the gays and lesbians and transgender and everything else will get their ceremony. This is 
they of course probably feel like they're being so woke and they're being so honoring, you know, of black students by having a ceremony just for black students. But I'm, as far as I see it, it looks as if this is just 1950s Jim Crow segregation. You know, we don't want those black kids intermixing with the white kids. So, you know, we'll have white kids over here and black kids over here. And, you know, and, uh, you know, I, I just, I don't know. I, I've had a problem about this for a long time. I don't know if I want to get in on the tangent. I mean, it could go a while. But I'm just going to say quickly, it seems to me that these so-called progressive liberals actually are the racists of our time. Uh, I'm not saying there aren't – there isn't racism in other parts of the country. I'm not saying that Republicans can't be racist or, or white people can't be racist. Or, or anything like that. I mean, obviously it happens. I mean, racism isn't confined to a political party. But, and it, and it doesn't surprise me that Democrats can be very racist because, and they hate to admit it, but the truth is that Democrats were, have always been the racist party. Democrats were the ones who were pro-slavery in, in the South back during the Civil War. It was the Republican Party that was founded on the idea that all men are created equal, that slavery is an abomination, that black people are not should not be inferior to the white to the white race. You know, it was Republicans like Theodore Roosevelt that invited the first uh, Booker T. Washington. He invited the first black person to ever dine at the White House and Democrats were outraged and thought he should be impeached because this was a horrible thing. To have a black man sitting at a table in the White House with the president of the United States being treated as an equal. Um, and in the South, during the 1950s and 60s, it was the Democratic governors that stood in the, the doorways of schools and said, you know, segregation now, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever. We will not allow these black kids. And of course, they used much um, more racially insensitive terms that we can't even use today, but these black kids will not be allowed in these schools. And it was the Republicans, um, for the most part, uh, like Dwight D. Eisenhower, who sent in fellow troops and said, no, you will allow black kids into the school. You will not deny black kids the right to an education. You will not deny them the right to vote. You will not deny them, deny them the right to free trials. You know, um, now, I have to give some credit to John Kennedy, who was a Democrat. Uh, he did the same thing. He sent in federal troops into Mississippi to ensure that James Meredith could get into school. So it, I'm not saying that every Democrat was a racist or is a racist, but I'm saying some of these Democrats uh, still have racist views, although they couch them and, and they've even, I'm sure, deceived themselves into believing that they are are doing a great service for black people, but in actuality, they are just doing what their fathers and forefathers did before them, which was segregate, have have separate 
facilities. Um, you know, uh, I mean, we're even seeing it in Hollywood where, you know, there's a big push that um, black people, black directors and black Hollywood scriptwriters should only hire black people for their productions. Um, they shouldn't have white people in the films, working behind the scenes, anything. Again, that's segregation. I mean, that sounds like something you would hear about in Hollywood of the 1940s and 50s, where you would have white films and you would have black films. And the black films would have all black actors and the white films would have all white actors. And, you know, I mean, it, it seems like we are returning to this. And I've heard this actually for quite some time by Democrats, not just on race, but I remember even, uh, I think I was in college. I don't know. I was much younger. I don't know if I was a teenager or in college, but there was talk about having um, uh, a separate school for gay kids. I remember distinctly them making that argument that gay students feel uncomfortable around straight students, and there was talk about uh, whether or not we should have schools that are just for gay kids that they are sent to. And I remember at the time thinking that is just, um, that is just ridiculous. You know, you know, it, you know, it, to say that they can't go to school with regular kids, like they're not regular, they're not normal. Um, which I mean, that's, that's a different story. I'm not, I'm not going to get into whether or not the whole issue of homosexuality and all that. I'm just saying, but that idea that we need to take kids out of here and give them, put them in their own facility because, you know, to me, that was more of a stigma that the Democrats are offering by saying you can't go to school with other kids. You have to have your own separate school was no different than than the old days of saying a black kid can't go to school with white kids. You have to go to your special school because, you know, um, so to me, and and I've thought about this a lot, but I'm trying to to make it very quick because I don't want the whole show to be just based on this. But I just want you to think about that idea. It, when you start hearing these things, think about how these people are so progressive that they are returning to the days of segregation. Um, that and and. You know, when I was a kid, I was taught by my parents to be colorblind. I mean, obviously you see color, obviously you see race, but my my parents and my parents aren't racist people. But my parents taught me that you know a person shouldn't be judged by the color of their skin. You know, this person is my friend. They're not my black friend. You know, they wouldn't be my my gay friend. They wouldn't be my Jewish friend. They would, you know, they would be my friend. You know, you don't, you don't categorize people. That's, that's not their identity. You know, you see someone and that is a human being. It's not a black person. You know, yeah, obviously you're going to know they're black. You know, you're going to know they're Asian. You're going to know they're Mexican, but, but that's not their identity. You don't, you don't go around and be like, you know, I'm, I'm regular because I'm white, but they're different because they're, you know, I'm normal, but they're Mexican, you know, 
Oh, if they're your friend, they're your friend. That's my friend Emilio. Not that's my Mexican friend Emilio, or you know. So that's how I grew up: is trying not to judge people by their color, or by their ethnicity, or their sexual orientation, or you know, their religion, things like that. You know, you try not to judge people for any of those things. But now I'm being told by progressive people on social media that I'm actually racist because being colorblind is is uh, is a racist act of erasing their identity. You know, that you're not acknowledging their blackness. You're not acknowledging what makes them unique and special. That we should think of them as my black friend. You know, that that I have my friends over here and then I have my black friends and I have my Mexican friends and I have my Jewish friends or whatever. I think that's racist. You know, I mean, they're a special person because of who they are, not because of what they are, not because they're black. You know, I like them because of who they are. I like a person. We have, they have a good sense of humor. They're fun to be around. They're kind, they're gentle. They're, they're, they've got, they've got integrity. They're whatever. Um, I'm not friends with them because they're black. You know, that's not what makes them special is, oh, well, you're, you're special. You're black. That's not what makes them special. You know, it's who they are on the inside. And I don't see why that's controversial, but it's considered racist now. And it just, to me, it just seems like by focusing on race and segregating people and making it special that if you're black, you're in a separate category than a white person. It just seems like we're bringing back segregation. That we're once again telling people that there is no unity. You can't, you know, blacks and whites can't coexist. They have to have their own school. They have to have their own education. They have to be taught black history because otherwise, otherwise they're being taught white person's history. They have to have their own language, their own music. You can't, white people shouldn't listen to black people's music. They shouldn't um, dress uh, like a black person, shouldn't talk like a black person, shouldn't, you know, that um, that they should have their own thing that is just them because they're black and white people shouldn't um, be a part of it. And, and, and they're telling black kids the same thing. I mean, you know, that, that you know, you need to embrace your blackness, use, you know, your African names, not the white man's name, not the slave owner's names. You know, you should have, you know, you shouldn't, you shouldn't be an Uncle Tom and try to dress like a white person. Um, you shouldn't try to speak um, like a white person, you know, meaning proper English or, you know, you shouldn't have your haircut short because that's a white person's haircut. You know, you need the dreadlocks and you know, and, and all these things, I, I don't want to get too much into it because it might come off that I'm saying this and that I'm being stereotypical, but, but the, I mean, this is what's being taught though, that they need to be unique. They need to have their own look, their own fashion, their own language, their own music. They need to have, you know, and to try to integrate into white society is them being an uncle Tom. They're being a turncoat. They're being, they're turning their back on their own race. And white people who um, listen to rap music or hip hop or use black slang or 
anything is somehow cultural appropriation. Uh, and it's the white person trying to hone in on black culture, trying to take it over, trying to steal it away from black people. So anyway, that I went off on a tangent. I was trying not to. Um, and there's lots more I could say, believe me, but I'm not going to. Um, I, I've said enough that could probably get me in deep, deep uh, trouble already. But uh, yeah, I'm just I'm just opposed to segregation. I I'm opposed to it. I can't believe that I have to say that in the year 2021. But I'm opposed to segregation, and I think it's a horrible thing. Uh, but anyway, uh, according to the Hill, more than 13,000 unaccompanied migrant children in U.S. custody. All right. Um, I'm not going to go too long on the story because we are quickly running out of time. But um, 13,000 undocumented minors who traveled to the U.S. without a parent or guardian are currently being held in federal custody, CBS News reported Wednesday. Um, many children are being kept in U.S. Customs and Border Protection, custody longer than the legally allowed 72 hours, according to the report while thousands are kept in cramped conditions with poor access to hygiene and other amenities. Um, and of course, the Department of uh, Homeland Security and the Department of Health and Human Services would not comment when the Hill tried to get information. Um, and uh, the Biden administration is coming under increasing pressure from both Republicans and Democrats, urging the president to secure the border as well as left-leaning activity activists calling on the administration to shut down detention camps where undocumented minors and others are held. Top Republic, House Republicans uh, during a stop in Texas on Monday called on President Biden to visit the border amid what both parties are calling a humanitarian crisis. Well, let me just say, you know, in all fairness uh, to both sides, that's laughable that the Republicans are calling this a humanitarian crisis and asking Biden to do something when they actually supported Donald Trump's policies, which were much more aggressive, um, and they refused to say it was a crisis. Now, suddenly they want something done to uh, help these minors. But having said that, um, I agree with them in this case. I just think it's hypocritical that this, this is a humanitarian crisis. And even Nancy Pelosi broke with the party and called it a crisis at the border. This is a problem of Biden's own making. I think we talked about this a little bit last week or the week before. Um, when, you know, if Biden wanted to change uh, Donald Trump's policies, he should have done it quietly uh, and, and quietly lifted some restrictions, did some different things. But the problem was that Biden, again, in an attempt to seem compassionate, came out and said that he was going to undo these draconian policies that Donald Trump had, which were somewhat cruel, and the cruelty was the point, as we talked about, to deter um, parents from sending their kids unaccompanied over the border and people, um, what are typically called coyotes, to sneak um, children over um, so they can have a better life here in the United States. It was an effective. I'm not, it was, it was, it was effective is what I'm trying to say. It was an effective uh, tool to stop this illegal immigration. It didn't stop it completely, 
but it cut cut it down tremendously. So Biden comes out and says, we're not going to do that anymore. We love people and we're not going to put people in, in cages. We're not going to detain them. If they come over the border, um, we're also going to find a pathway to citizenship for these people. So then what happened is then all these people made a, a run for the border because we can do it now because the new president isn't going to put any restrictions on us. And he's going to allow us citizenship if we get over the border. So now we have more people coming to the border right now than we did during the entire Trump presidency in a year in the Trump presidency, which at that time was considered to be a crisis. Now we have tons of people showing up and they have overrun our borders. We cannot house all these people. They, it is just an absolute mess that Biden has created by announcing to the world that he's going to give citizenship to these people and that he's not going to continue the cruel policies of his predecessor. It was basically sending an engraved invitation to everybody around the world. America's open for business. Come on to the border. You can come on through. So now we have a horrible crisis going on down at the border. Horrible, horrible crisis. We don't have the facilities to house all of these people. We don't, we don't have the funds to provide food and clothing and adequate shelter. We don't, we, we don't have the money now to send these people back. I mean, you know, you know, I, I mean, it would just cost so much money. I mean, I, I mean, we might have to do it, but it would cost a tremendous amount of money then to try to round, you know, I mean, a lot of them are in these migrant facilities, but to round them all up and, and send buses and stuff, the amount of gas and everything it would take to, to send them all back across the border. Um, you know, and you got problems with Mexico. Mexico doesn't want us to just to go over the border and just drop off people. A lot of people who aren't even from Mexico. I mean, some of these people are from Central America and South America that have come through Mexico to get to the United States, but they're not Mexican. So Mexico doesn't want these people dropped off. So we have this huge crisis going on at the border. We're in the middle. The pandemic is coming to an end. But as I said earlier, at best estimates, we are in a recession, a deep recession. But economically, we are in a depression. We can't bring all these people in to, you know, to work. And we can't afford to pay the money. So we just have a real problem here. So anyway, about out of time. So I will uh, talk to you soon. Uh, bye, everyone.